Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Thank you for joining me on this live stream. Normally, uh, the Reliability Podcast, Reliability Matters podcast, does not do live events. Um, we normally pre-record, um, but uh, this time we decided to throw caution to the wind. We'll decide later uh, if that was a good idea, and um, we'll um, we'll see how this works. Uh, thank you for subscribing and uh, watching or listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. I'm so pleased that uh, you're part of our podcast family, and I'm also very pleased to uh, report that we have, uh, as of uh, this morning, a little over 20,000, almost 21,000 uh, downloads. Uh, so uh, that is uh, extremely exciting. I really appreciate the support our industry has given this program. Uh, our first episode was on July 12th, 2018. And um, I literally recorded that in my closet <laughs> because um, uh, that was the only place I could get uh, kind of the acoustically um, uh, superior sound compared to the rest of my house, which was very echoey. I've since built a studio, uh, and I'll give you some uh, studio views uh, later on in the broadcast. Um, we, um, uh, the, the first video version came out. We, we did audio-only uh, broadcasts for the first um, uh, year and a half or so. And then in August of 2020, uh, we started the Reliability Matters YouTube channel. And uh, so, so for those who like to watch rather than listen, uh, the YouTube channel is available. Uh, normally, we don't broadcast on LinkedIn. Uh, it's just YouTube. Uh, today is a little bit different, of course. Um, we've had in the last, uh, well, in the last 100 episodes, I've interviewed 117 guests, all subject matter experts in their field. And uh, they range from... Uh, all sorts of subjects from failure analysis to uh, best practices in reflow, printing, solder materials, uh, thermal management, and so, so much more. Um, our podcasts are uh, currently available on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, iHeartRadio, and, and at least a thousand other channels. Um, I'm not sure where you listen to it on, but uh, it's available in a lot of different places. And uh, we also um, have this show syndicated uh, on uh, Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at pcbchat.com and at Ascendo Reliability at reliability.fm. And I'm very grateful um, to our two syndicators for syndicating this show. That would be Mike Buto, uh, Editor-in-Chief of uh, Circuit Assembly Magazine, and uh, Fred Schenkelberg from um, Ascendo Reliability. So I'm, I'm very Grateful to those um, those uh, folks for syndicating the show. Um, today's show uh, is again quite unique. I don't have any live guests on the show. I'm the only person live um, for this episode uh, for this broadcast. Uh, but um, uh, we're going to show clips from uh, prior shows. Um, I can't really say these are my favorite clips because they're all my favorite clips. Uh, all each episode is, you know, it's kind of like children. You you like all your children. You love all your children, uh, and I I like and love all the guests that I've had. Uh, but I pulled a few clips uh, from prior episodes that stood out in my mind. 
Um, we're also going to listen to, throughout this broadcast, messages uh, from prior guests. Uh, I had several guests uh, send me um, uh, audio messages uh, and uh, giving me their impressions of the show and, and reliability in general, not just the show. So our first uh, guest, my first guest, uh, was way back in December of 2018, and it was my friend and colleague Bob Willis. It's an audio-only clip because we didn't do video back then uh, on this show. Um, but uh, let, me, um, let me switch over to my friend and colleague Bob Willis, who was talking about process defects. If we talk about sort of uh, process defects, I still see more, so many uh, process defects associated with uh, surface finish on PCBs. Um, that's still, you know, very, very common. Um, uh, it always reminds me um, of the, the one of the videos I made uh, back when I was making videos. Uh, I introduced a video on a guide to surface finishes, and it was my worst-selling video. And although that particular problem has just gone on and on and on for years, it's 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 really weird. The other thing that I tend to see, um, you know, is that today a lot of designers don't specify the PCBs correctly. You know, they quote IPC or, you know, a standard or a reference, but they don't understand the standard. So they'll say, I want this to IPC XYZ, but they've never read the standard. Um, or if they specify something to a PCB manufacturer, they've never read those standards. So a better understanding of what you're buying is important and how you specify it, I think, is important, and that would eliminate many of the problems we see uh, within the industry. Okay, that was uh, my friend and colleague Bob Willis on episode number one, recorded in my closet. Um, so um, I'm glad to be, so to speak, out of the closet uh, in that regard. Now we're going to hear from um, Rob uh, Boguski. He is the uh, founder and president of a testing company, contract testing company called Daytest. They're up in Silicon Valley in the northern part of my state, in California. Uh, he has also been a guest a couple of times on this show. Um, uh, in September of 2019, he was on this show talking about uh, the testing of circuit assemblies. Uh, here's a quick message from my friend and colleague, Robert Boguski. Mike, it's Rob Boguski from Daytest and your compadre on the SMTA board. Congratulations on your forthcoming 100th episode of the Reliability Matters podcast. I think I was one of your first 10 guests back in the summer of 2019. You invited me to come on the show and talk about some of the columns I've written and uh, some of the sacred cows I've tried to explode uh, over the years that uh, have uh, polluted the thinking in our industry or biased us uh, one way or another. So uh, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it and uh, have appeared uh, one or two other times since then and enjoyed those episodes as well. Um, as president of a test engineering company, I see reliability coming and going. Uh, coming in the sense that testing reveals questionable workmanship coming off the line and going because we see failed units uh, months, often years after manufacture in our failure analysis business. And again, due to marginal manufacturing. Unfortunately for many, the green light on the test box means 
good, which means ship, which means money in the bank, which means cash flow. And that's, uh, that's very seductive and uh, leads to short-term thinking in many incidences. Uh, it also contributes to long-term failures, but the short-term thinkers, of course, think it's someone else's problem which makes it a bigger problem for everybody and contributes to reputational risk for our industry particularly and American industry generally. And uh, ask the U.S. auto industry how that worked out for them back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when everything uh, uh, left this country and the Japanese stole the mantle away from us for automotive uh, engineering and quality. Yep, you bet reliability matters. Um, thanks for shining a light on the issue, giving it wider attention that it, that it really deserves, and addressing things like short-term thinking, the, the same thing that begets substandard, suboptimal processes and shoddy products. Please keep talking about this. Please keep having impactful guests, asking the hard questions, demanding the right answers. And hopefully you can do it and do it in a wide variety of ways like you're so good at uh, for your next 100 episodes. Many more years of success and uh, see you down the road. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Rob. And I do remember the cars from the 70s. I worked on a lot of them, uh, a bit of a motorhead myself. And uh, yeah, those were not our best car days. Uh, a lot has changed thanks to what? Reliability, of course. Um, my next clip from a prior episode uh, is, is one of my, again, I don't like to use the word favorite because they're all favorite, uh, but, but one that really stood out, and that was uh, Patrick Stimpert. He is the uh, director of manufacturing for a contract assembly company um, on the East Coast in Pennsylvania, I believe, uh, called Matrix Group. And what struck me about the conversation it was how... In, in his opinion, U.S. contract manufacturers can compete with any contract manufacturer anywhere in the world. It's all a question of optimization. Even though labor uh, is um, significantly lower as a cost standpoint uh, overseas, um, it's not all about labor. And uh, let's listen to what he said about that. So you're a U.S.-based, obviously, you're a U.S.-based Western Pennsylvania um, contract manufacturer. What uh, With so many contract manufacturers offshore, uh, Vietnam, China, Mexico, others. What are, the, besides logistics, besides you being down the street or you know, uh, uh, speaking the same language and all that, what are some of the advantages, in your opinion, uh, that a U.S. manufacturer brings to the table? Maybe, maybe that advantage is not price because you know, labor costs are higher here, but um, what are what are besides price? What are, what are, well price isn't in it. But so besides uh, being local, what are some of the advantages of of working a U.S. company working with a U.S. based contract manufacturer? What what are the value adds? I guess is the question. So really, the the difference that you know everybody talks about labor and quite honestly, in the contract manufacturer, if labor is your offset then you have way too many manual processes and processes that are associated with any one customer or any one build. Um, and so it really becomes down to how, how you can support um, rapid change and then 
with that rapid change, the less human activity, the better it is um, that, that you can pivot quicker. You can pivot quicker and take on new assemblies and all the rest of that. So if labor is the only discussion and then there's really you're doing something wrong as a contract manufacturer in the United States because it should not be so much labor driven um, because the automation is not that expensive. In the, in, especially if you've tried to hire people in the last couple of years. And if you think that um, automation is expensive, just keep changing the bottom 20% out in your organization. And I'll tell you how expensive that is, especially people that may not be as conscious about quality as you'd like them to be. Um, it only takes a, a couple big oops to, to really justify 150 to $200,000 Koyang. It doesn't take a whole lot of oops to get there. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so in, in, in your opinion, because we can eliminate a lot of the labor, which is the advantage of, of offshore companies' labor, uh, to your point, can a U.S., can a lean, well-run, well-oiled machine, contract manufacturer within the U.S., compete on a per-cost basis, a per-piece basis with pretty much any manufacturer in the world? Yeah, so really tariffs would be the only things that, that could blow us up. Um, but as far as automation and shipping cost and delays in ports and all the rest of that uh, items, um, you should be able to compete, especially um, especially offshore, maybe not so much nearshore, but having relationships with nearshores are probably pretty important as well, especially cable houses and stuff like that. But at they're really, if you lean out your facility and you automate, especially like robotic soldering, I mean, where everybody was hand soldering, um, there are there is equipment now on the market that looks like it'll re, it'll do about 90% of the through hole uh, hand placing that was being done. Um, there is inspection equipment coming on that will now do bottom side and top side um, solder and top side uh, parts components, and so. We don't believe we're on the cutting edge, but I got to tell you, it isn't much past the cutting edge of what we'll put in this place and run with. Um, because I do have that kind of one of that core principles is I don't want to put technology out on the floor that our people can't grow with and be part of. And so uh, we do want it. We do want it tested. Uh, we don't want it correct before I put it on the floor. But getting machine two of the build, we've done that here before. We can compete with any country in the world. If labor is uh, your major concern, you have too much labor. Interesting, very interesting point. Um, next, we're going to hear from my first, uh, or not my first guest, but uh, uh, one of my earlier guests, uh, which was uh, Doug Pauls. Uh, Doug Pauls is a, a senior fellow at Collins Aerospace, and he was the chair of the IPC um, task force. He called it the Rhino Group. Uh, and uh, that was the committee that changed the cleanliness standard. Uh, we had a cleanliness standard for 40 years, uh, and it was long overdue for a makeover. And, um, and Doug and his Rhino team uh, did that. Um, and we're going to hear a few comments about what Doug thinks about reliability uh, right now. Hello, this is Doug Pauls, a technical fellow at Collins Aerospace in lovely Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I had the pleasure of being on one of Mike's early broadcasts, one of his podcasts, related to the work that I led defining the new cleanliness standards and IPCJ standard 001. 
I have to say it was a very enjoyable experience. Mike and I have known each other for years, and Mike is a natural at this sort of thing. I had a blast. You know, when you think about the general topic of reliability, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of aspects of reliability that you can dive into, but still not do more than really scratch the surface. I have spent over 35 years focusing on just two aspects of reliability, electronics cleaning and conformal coating. And I have to say, I'm still learning new stuff each day. There are precious few educational offerings out there in the electronics industry, especially related to the processes of manufacturing electronics. So when you find a knowledgeable authority like Mike, who can relate things in a way that almost anyone can understand, well, that is a gem to be treasured. One of the things that we engineers do is to make things smaller, cheaper, faster, and lighter. And when you make things smaller, cheaper, and faster, and lighter, it means things are getting much more dense in the circuitry. And when that happens, you have to constantly reassess what you know about various aspects of reliability to see if it's still relevant. Maybe you have crossed a threshold where what you knew before is now no longer good enough. You know, one of the benefits of being in the industry so long as Mike and I have is that you get to know the experts in various areas and you can tap into that network of knowledge. I think that the Reliability Matters podcasts help people to plug into that network much faster. I think it's an excellent offering, an excellent offering. And I recommend it to anyone who is looking to become more educated in electronics manufacturing. Mike, I want to thank you for doing this. I regularly listen to your webinars. You are a very, very smooth speaker. And often I like to see how you take a complex topic and make it more understandable to the lay individual. The changes in electronics manufacturing are happening so fast that it's easy for an individual to get lost. Your podcasts are a very handy navigational tool. Keep it up. I love what you're doing. Thanks. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate those, those kind words. Uh, you've been uh, somewhat of a mentor to me, not somewhat of a mentor. You've been a mentor to me. Uh, I've uh, always uh, respected your work and uh, we're definitely members of the Mutual Admiration Society. Um, our next, and, and you do sound like that. You sound like Doug. I know I, you know, when I first started doing this, I didn't like the sound of my own voice. I don't know if I still do, but I've come to accept that's the sound of my own voice. Uh, I think it always comes as a shock to people when they hear themselves back. Um, my next guest is kind of the partner in crime with Doug Pauls. He's also from uh, Collins uh, Aerospace, uh, and that is Dave Hillman, who is in the process right now. I'm not sure if he's done with his epic journey, but he's in a kayak, kayaking, I don't know, something like a thousand miles. Maybe Doug can chime in. He knows uh, the details, but he's he's on a, a kind of an epic journey, an adventure. Um, and we talked about 
one of the things that we've talked about most on this show, and that is uh, voiding. Here's some commentary uh, and some sage advice uh, from uh, Dave Hillman from Collins Aerospace. Dave Hillman, it's so nice to see you today. Hi, Mike. Glad to be here. Looking forward to having a fun discussion today. I was talking to a group of people the other day about voiding because in 2020, there's nothing else to do. And, <laughs> and um, the, the, I've asked several of my guests this question, and uh, I've received uh, answers back, and I'm going to ask you the same question. Uh, is voiding overrated? And, you know, IPC has the BGA voiding spec of, you know, 30%, you know, cumulative. Um, I don't know if that number came from a tarot card or a fortune cookie or science. It came or, from or Rockwell Collins data. I, well, it did. Yeah, oh, well, my gosh. Oh, that. absolutely. I know that history. My therapist said not to talk about it, but we'll talk about it. Anyway. <laughs> well, I'm so glad I asked you that question, because the answer that um, generally I get back is, yeah, it's overrated. It's, uh, you know, it's pie in the sky. It's, it's, uh, you know, rather random. Uh, so I'm, I am actually, which wouldn't surprise me, by the way, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm in the cleaning business and we had a cleaning spec that was kind of chosen out of thin air, you know, oh, 35 yes. years ago, right? You know, which one I'm talking about, um, which is now gone, thankfully. Um, <laughs> but, um, I was curious if the same phenomenon, you know, resulted in avoiding standard or if that actually, was based on science, and if it was based on science, what criteria, this is kind of, I tend to ask questions that morph into several questions, all within <laughs> one question. We so, just gotta remember to come back to the other side. I know, right, there, right, yeah. yeah, it's a trail of breadcrumbs. Um, which will lead me to um, what types of technology or what types of environmental um, in-use applications or what type of, of uh, reliability expectations, et cetera, would determine if a certain percentage of voiding is too high or too low. So there we go. It's a compound question. I'll well, we'll, it over to we'll you. start with parts and bounce around to the various regions. But yeah, and everything, you know, we're going to end up talking about bottom terminated, but it really does have its roots in, in BGAs. Um, one of my mentors told me that we as engineers should all have paid attention in um, sociology class because Engineering is easy, people are hard. And what has happened is that we've got this brand new technology called bulgur arrays. And when we got that, we said, well, we've got to see the solder joints. Well, what's the easiest way to see a solder joint? Well, we'll cross section it. Well, okay, that's great, but I can't sell the product when you're done with it, Dave. So let's go to x-ray because, um, you know, x-ray in the medical world and x-ray in the dental world. And we've done x-rays, we kind of know how to deal with that. And so we x-rayed them and lo and behold, what did we see? we saw voids. And the first thing human reaction to something different is it's bad. No, it's different. So when we see voids, we don't know it's good. We don't know it's bad. We as an industry have to go determine that through data. And it was quite interesting when we introduced BGA criteria to the J standard 001 national standard, um, it was set at 10% um, was in the committee. We're talking about 10%. And Les Himes had looked at that and said, well, that's awful low. And, and there were a number of people who Mike said, just like you said, hey, wait a second, voids don't really mean anything, especially a couple friends at Motorola. When Motorola was uh, king with the cell phones, they had looked at it extensively, just hadn't published the data. 
And so uh, Rocco Collins and Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman and you name it, a ton of companies got together and looked at the available data and said 25%. And that's what went in. And then about six years ago, um, Rockwell Collins took a look at it. And especially, uh, as you said, there were a number of people in the industry, hey, this is this is ridiculous, 25 is low. And so we did our test and I, I'll remember that test quite well because I took 40 circuit boards and I ran them down our process and which ends up being about a quarter of a million BGA solder joints. And guess how many solder joints or voids in those solder joints greater than 25% did I produce? Right there. I counted them on one, both hands. That was it. Both hands, ten. that's it. We, we x-rayed wow. every board, every part, and 10. And I'm thinking, okay, statistically, I have a problem. And I could dealt with that. We did another set of boards, and we teamed up with a couple people. And, and it turns out, if you want to make voids, the solder paste suppliers know how. And they will give you a paste that is horrible and will produce tons of voids. My bigger problem was going back to my boss and saying, hi, I have 40 test vehicles that I can't use. Can I buy another 40? Um, I promised to use the first 40 for something else, which we did. But um, yeah, it is hard to produce voids in BGA solder joints. And we did the second round when we showed that um, you can have a void that's almost 50% um, of the diameter of the BGA solder balls here itself. And if it's gonna fail, it's gonna fail, regardless of that void. There's been this long discussion, well, a void will blunt the crack growth, or no, the void causes the crack to grow faster. And in the end, it comes down to just good old global CT mismatch. If I can take a perfectly solid, no void BGA solder joint and fail it, because it's in the wrong place, in the wrong design, in the wrong stress. So we went through the data, again, Collins, Lockheed, HP, you know, 10 or 15 companies got together, reviewed the data we had produced. We did a couple other tests and in the end, 30% went in. And it's 30% of the X-ray image area. And if you go do algebra, which my co-op did and actually saved a very embarrassing uh, math mistake in a uh, published paper, um, it, that ends up being, if it's 30% of the X-ray image area, that's 57% of the diameter. And so, you know, whether you're looking at it and thinking geometry or just thinking X-ray, um, very robust. And kind of like plated through whole fill, which probably something else we'll talk about today. Um, you know, if you're at that level, something's wrong. Something is seriously right. wrong. Our normal uh, ball grid array voiding percentage today in our Coralville facility is two to 3%. You know, we've teamed up with our solder paste manufacturer. We've refined the profiles and they, you know, the, the solder paste suppliers produce some great materials. You just got to use their materials. They understand what causes voids uh, for most of it and they know how to work that. So, so what happens when we get to QFNs? We x-ray them and in that thermal pad, which you'll hear me call the belly pad, and the, the IO pads I call the fence because to me, and you know this better than I do, trying to get cleaning solution past that fence to get in yeah. that other area is like, I, to me, I think it's impossible. I don't know how you do it. I just, it's amazing what, what the cleaning chemistry is designed and the equipment design, how we even come close to doing that. The same thing, we looked at the belly pad. Oh, there's voids there. Oh, these are bad. And there's a twist to that. So when ball grid arrays, the voids, the only thing that void really related to was the solder joint integrity. 
QFN, yeah, QFNs came into being for two reasons. One, I want electrical functionality. I can push signal grounding through that belly pad. I can dump heat through that belly pad. It isn't just how good is the solder joint. There's functional needs. And that's where we got all wrapped up. That's why the industry has been, you know, you don't hear the industry talk about BGA voids anymore. We don't. We 30%, everyone hits it. But boy, the discussion in the committees about QFN or B, BTC voiding, that's been the latest craze. Thank you, Dave. Um, we uh, heard from Doug Pauls. Uh, Dave was uh, on a kayak uh, going from uh, the sea to um, at the start of the uh, Missouri River um, and down to the Gulf of Mexico. And he's presently in uh, southern South Dakota. Uh, and uh, uh, Mark Hughes uh, commented, uh, I love this guy. Uh, go Dave. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, my next uh, replay, next clip, was from a very fascinating speaker, a very engaging speaker. And he's a reliability expert, and that's Doc Brown. And uh, he cited uh, something taken right out of the, right out of the newspapers. Should I say newspapers? Right out of the, uh, the, the, the news broadcast or feed that you get. Uh, and that is uh, a reliability event uh, which was uh, uh, in the news and uh, how it totally could have been avoided and how the problem was missed. Uh, here's Doc Brown. Let's say you're, uh, you're working around your house and you're, you're going to build or rebuild uh, a deck. You, one of the first things you're going to do is uh, go to your city or, or county office uh, and, and get all the standards that are required, uh, the building codes that you're going to be working with, and it's going to tell you things like, you know, nailing schedules and joists and spans and all that kind of stuff, and you're going to build it to that standard. So this was an unfortunate situation that occurred uh, a few years back at uh, Senior Skip Day, uh, where a bunch of uh, seniors took the day off and they're all happily celebrating. You can see uh, some of the uh, high school seniors there uh, lifting their adult beverage that they probably shouldn't have been consuming. And they were dancing and having a good time. So there was a failure. You can see the deck kind of uh, beginning its collapse there uh, before. And then the after picture shows what happened. Uh, you know, mercifully there there were no fatalities, or I wouldn't be showing this. But so so what happened here? It was built to the standard, and and yet it failed. So the underlying supposition behind those building code standards are that the loads on the deck are going to be static loads. That is, they're just going to be dead weights of of people on the deck or other things on the deck. They do not take into account dynamic loads, that is people moving and dancing, uh, nor do they take into account uh, what's, what's called as uh, reasonably foreseeable misuse. So this is a legal term that we as, as design engineers are required to operate to, that we need to have our designs uh, tailored not only towards the intended use, but also uh, legally foreseeable misuse. So in the simulation world that we work at it, in, uh, in ANSYS, we have a lot of really excellent, excellent simulation tools that are available. So 
I'd like to kind of tee this up in, in terms of uh, a catchy little phrase that I'll offer for your consideration, and that is rules versus tools. So design rules are great, they're necessary, but they're not always sufficient. And, and that's where uh, simulation uh, comes into play. And that's where simulation comes into play. Don't they wish they had uh, done some simulated testing? We're gonna hear uh, a couple of comments from uh, my friend and colleague, Bob Willis, who, as you may recall, was guest number one uh, on episode number one. Uh, he uh, uh, was kind enough to send a few comments about his thoughts on reliability and the show. Uh, so here's Bob. Hello, my name's Bob Willis, and uh, I'm from bobwillis.co.uk. Uh, I was a very early guest on Reliability Matters podcast, and it's been a pleasure to provide uh, some insight into the different types of failures that occur in modern electronic assembly. It doesn't matter if we're listening to a podcast 10 years ago, five years ago, or five years in the future. Some of the process issues that we face will continue. And although we understand why they occur, there may be different uh, issues that have caused that problem to reoccur in a product. Sometimes what happens is we find a solution to a problem. However, we don't find the root cause of the problem. The key thing with any failure analysis is finding root cause. But sometimes companies are just too eager to just find a sticking plaster to allow them to continue production and meeting customer requirements. You always need to go back and find the root cause of the problem. Otherwise, the problem will reoccur, possibly slightly different, but it will reoccur. I think that uh, the recordings, uh, the Reliability Matters podcast, are a useful resource for engineers now and in the future but it also gives an insight to how different engineers deal with problems. And of course, you know, sometimes people use Taguchi experiments. Sometimes people use a scientific approach. Sometimes people just jump into a problem and because of their experience are able to solve that problem. So regardless of what and how a problem is overcome, it needs to be documented with photographs, x-rays, reports, etc. And that's how we pass on knowledge. But with Reliability Matters podcast, it's a discussion between engineer to engineer. And I think that's extremely valuable. Thank you, Bob. Okay, now we're going to go to the Meet the Press episode, uh, which featured Phil Zaro, uh, Jenny Huang, Bob Willis, and Ray Prasad. Here we go. Certainly yeah, class one device. No one's going to die if I don't get the warning. Um, but then again, I'm going to put it in my pocket. I'm going to go outside in the snow and the rain and the heat and the humidity, and, and maybe I'll take it diving, uh, and, and it will fail because it's not, a, it's not a class three device. It's a class one device. It's designed not to live forever. Um, so that, that's kind of the greater point is, is um, if we're going to connect everything, even things that aren't life-saving, that don't necessarily need high reliability, it's still not a good idea for the for this connected pen to fail uh, six weeks, you know, after I buy it for for thirty five dollars. So that's kind of the point I'm making. Is is, um, yeah, but Mike, some of it is kind of silly, like this pen for the ink. You know, I mean, the way we have the pen is cost a few cents, and you know, whatever. I mean, some of it is gimmicked just to make a pen that should have been but less than a dollar in the first place, and you you know, it's a it, 
you just throw it. I mean, why do you need to connect all this stuff? So there's something- That's, my, that's exactly the point I'm making is, yeah, you know, why do we yeah. need a toothbrush that is connected to the yeah. internet? And, and there are today toothbrushes that can connect to the internet. So you can spy on little Johnny or Janie to yeah. see if they brush their teeth. There are, that's kind of the point is we're yeah. connecting things well, that yeah. are silly. Yeah, yeah some I of think... it's silly. Some of it, some of it is great. Most yeah. of it is probably great, but there's a certain amount of stuff that's just, you know, well, I think, gimmicky. I think, yeah, I, I, I agree with both Ray and, and Jenny. And, and on the one hand, as Jenny said, uh, there's a lot of fantastic application enabling that we have. Um, perfect example, here we are, uh, thanks to the Internet of Things. On the other hand, yeah, I, I don't need to tell Alexa to turn on my electric toothbrush. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so it's, you know, Ray saying it's technology for technology's sake. Like, why? And uh, so in between those two extremes kind of lies, you know, what, what's practical and everything else. But the other, the other issue with the Internet of, of Things, I think, is uh, it's, it's more sociopolitical, but, but the loss of privacy. And I think it's also a generational thing. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, from our standpoint, I think we look at things being hacked, the disruptions we have and the potential for disruption to technologies and certainly, you know, with our end of the industry. On the other hand, you know, I, I, you know, I have discussions with my thirty-year-old uh, uh, stepdaughter and uh, you know, the proverbial millennial. They, they, they no, no, no qualms about loss of privacy or anything else. Alexa everywhere, social media everywhere. So I, it may be a generational perspective here as well. But probably, but you know, I just I agree. There's a, there's a lot of really great enabling stuff. It's fantastic, but it's also a lot of technology for technology's sake. Sure. I think the most important thing is, uh, as has already been said, uh, is that, uh, you know, there is a limit, um, uh, but there's not a limit in the imagination. So where the imagination True. can come up with ideas, then we can go in that direction. Sure. But uh, all I would say is that uh, I wish I'd uh, actually registered the uh, IoT, Internet of Things, and 4.0 to all the conference organizers, marketing companies then i would have made a fortune without <laughs> any technology whatsoever sure I think that we to me connecting things together and taking valuable information and sharing it with another machine another system to me as an engineer seems obvious now i know there are limitations but that's up to the engineer to overcome those problems with getting the four or four or five companies in a room and talking to them but uh unless we take advantage of that information because there are so many AOI systems, SPI systems, the data's there, but nobody knows what to do with it. There's just too much of it. So again, engineers, and we must make sure the younger engineers uh, go somewhere that perhaps some of their peers don't go on a regular basis. It's called the shop floor. Oh, and right. look at real things, not just the data, look at real things, because that's where you learn how problems actually can occur and talk to the people who run the machines because they're there 24 seven. Perhaps they don't understand about certain things, but they see a lot of stuff. Yeah, I remember uh, years ago, I learned the concept of uh, what we called MBWA management by walking around. And it is amazing. As you said, Bob, talk to the people because people have stories. They're they're desperate for to and share that, it with someone. The yeah that's the one of the key thing in the audit that i do and you know in the conference room everybody just says the right thing because this is what they do their right. quality manager he's used to talking to everybody oh we do this we do this yeah 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 and then i said okay so one of the requirements i have is uh, that I'll, we talked earlier that i miss that can be done remotely i tell people okay um, 
uh, just leave me alone for a day and uh, I'm not going to interfere with production, but I do want to be able to talk to the people on the floor to go talk around. It's amazing the people who are following these things. Sometimes they don't, they have no idea what the guy in the conference room told me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, and they are the ones sort of making the decision on the shop floor. So exactly, uh, you know, Bob is right. You just go on the floor. That's where you'll find out the, the real thing because those are the guys making the decisions, you know. Yeah. The, best, and, uh, the best experience I can ever say is uh, working in a plant in Texas. And I, as uh, Ray said, I was just a le left to wander around look at anything I wanted to, ask anything I wanted to. And just directly after the audit, one of the important things that one of the supervisors said, can we have a recording of your voice? And I said, why? <laughs> he said, because you've got this strange accent. <laughs> all the girls on the shop floor love it. Oh my goodness. I had to, I had to do oh, Bob. Anyway, slightly <laughs> offline. Charmer. <laughs> it's the English accent, I guess. Now, yeah, if you call yeah. in the next 20 minutes, we'll, we'll cut Bob's voice to only 20, 20 pounds for uh, six words. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's uh, that's funny. They just wanted to hear your voice, the soothing, yeah. calming voice of Bob Willis. Huge well, you see, now you're finding out industry secrets here. Yeah. Um, so Mike, about yes. the, uh, about the, um, big umbrella of IoT, perhaps a, uh, uh, what apply to our industry will be under the subset of uh, uh, IIoT, which is industrial IoT, which is perhaps we are most more interested in. If we look at the industrial IoT, and then you mentioned about uh, which, you know, we, we didn't respond yet, is about a class one, two, three under the uh, under the J standard, uh, or under the IPC six ten or J standard uh, uh, one. Uh, you know, if you don't look at the industrial IoT, you know, if I have to make recommendation, then I would say I would not classify as a class one. Uh, mostly would be class two or some class. Of, maybe class three, because once you really looking into the IoT implement into the system, and there's that, has a quite of a, a trickle down effects, uh, particularly when we linked into the 5G network, because that's really the, another big piece of the industrial IoT is really needed to function hand in hand with 5G. Then once you, you, you're doing the wireless, the system become much more complex. Mm -hmm. So that that the hardware module, we look at our industry to produce the IoT modules, which is, you know, for example, with the RF, you know, the power units, application processors, the base station processor, all those components on this assembly. And then uh, our um, reliability level uh, has to be reached to a certain level, certain so I think the uh, based on the current existing uh, for standard industry standards, it, you know, if I will have to make recommendations, if, if people ask me, I will say it will be class two or class three. Mm -hmm. Interesting conversation. Um, I have a couple of comments. For some reason, they're not coming up on my uh, on my control system here. But Mark Hughes said, uh, if I had a nickel for every time someone asked me. For a recording of my voice, I'd still be penniless. Uh, and Prasad said, "Are the uh, asked are the uh, server systems being built 
to class two. I don't know the answer to that. I would assume servers are probably class two, but it depends on the nature of the server. I'm sure the military servers are probably class three, uh, but most um, commercial servers, I would assume, are being built to IPC class two. Um, the next uh, person we're going to hear from is my friend and colleague, Eric Camden. Uh, Eric is a failure analysis investigator for Foresight Laboratories in Kokomo, Indiana. I like to um, liken his uh, job to a CSI, a crime scene investigator, only in this case, the crime usually has something to do with process, which usually has something to do with a lack of reliability. Here's a few words from Eric. Hi, everybody. This is Eric Camden, lead investigator at Foresight Labs in Kokomo, Indiana. I was one of Mike's earliest guests on the Reliability Matters podcast, and what I remember from that time was Mike and I having a relaxed chat about different issues affecting the electronics industry with regards to long-term reliability in different field service environments. I think we spent the bulk of that time discussing the impact that QFNs have had specifically on reliability, but in a broader sense, we were discussing the continuing efforts of miniaturization and how that drives the need to better understand ionic residue sources, as well as the best way to analyze the residues in order to determine that product's risk of failure. I was only covering one small part of the full puzzle that is reliability, but with the podcast, Mike talks to people from every corner of the industry, from raw component manufacturing, PC fab, all types of assembly and testing, all the way up to final packaging to the end user. The podcast is a great resource if you're looking for specific information about a part of the industry that is giving you trouble or even better, a place to turn before you find that field failure. There's a lot of really good information freely available in our industry, and the Reliability Matters podcast is certainly among the best sources to find it. Thanks, Mike, for providing this valuable service, and here's to 100 more episodes. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate the words, Eric. Um, Eric was a guest a couple of times on the show, and he always has uh, some fascinating uh, visual assets to show of uh, things that have gone wrong. Um, my next uh, clip is from uh, Professor and Dr. Eric Fosum. Uh, you remember the old American Express commercials? You may not uh, know me, but you know what I invented. Uh, that's that's uh, Eric. Eric is the only uh, guest I had on the show who's won an Emmy. Now, what is someone in this industry doing with with, with an Emmy? Um, that'll make sense when you hear what he invented. Uh, he is the inventor of the CMOS image sensor, better known as the digital camera. Uh, yeah, that was him. And uh, it, whoever said that um, engineers and, and scientists and PhDs don't have a sense of humor hasn't met Dr. Eric Fosum. So does the fact that your invention changed the world, including people and uh, companies and entire industries, does that still startle you? Do you wake up once in a while and go, that was me? Uh, yeah, actually it does. I mean, you would think I would be used to it, but now it's become so embedded and so ubiquitous um, most of the time, I don't think about it, but every now and then, uh, you know, there's someone using a camera or something like that, uh, especially if I don't know them, they don't know me. It's like, wow, this is like <clears throat> really weird to like see people using your technology every day, stand next to them. It's like that old American express express commercial. Uh, you may not know my name, but you know, my technology. And, right. See. <laughs> You're a bit more humble than me. I think if I had stumbled across, well, I say stumble as if you won the lottery, but but um, if I had invented something like that, um, I would probably be inclined to just tap people on the shoulder and go, hey, that's me. <laughs> so, uh, well, you're not more like me. Uh, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to say, but occasionally 
uh, I'm a goofball and I do that. I, I remember some couple taking a photograph uh, in Europe uh, and uh, I said, excuse me for a second, can I just photobomb your picture? And they kind of looked at me and I had my wife take the picture. And uh, and then after it was over, well, they were, they were very polite, but they were like, I had no clue what I was doing there. They looked around and I, uh, I explained to them what it was. They still didn't quite believe me, but then about two weeks later, I got a like, holy cow, I can't believe it. Uh, we met. Dr. and Professor Eric Fossum, inventor of the uh, digital camera. Um, we also talked quite a bit about unintended consequences of his invention, where his invention arguably uh, has um, uh, connected the world and allowed us to share pictures of our grandkids and vacations and things like that. Uh, he did express some concern over some of the um, more nefarious uses of uh, camera systems like facial identification systems that governments are using and things like that. So um, definitely some, um, uh, so, some things to ponder. Uh, thanks, uh, Jason Keeping, for your kind words. I, I appreciate uh, you being on this, uh, on this uh, episode, and, and thanks for your kind words of support. Um, next, we're going to hear a few words from uh, Mark Hughes. Mark Hughes is the research director at Royal Circuit Solutions and Advanced Assembly. He does a lot of podcasts and YouTube stuff, um, and uh, he has a very unique and entertaining uh, form of uh, getting uh, complex information out to, um, out to users. Uh, here is a few words from Mark. Mike Conrad, Mark Hughes here, Research Director of Royal Circuit Solutions and Advanced Assembly. I just wanted to thank you again for letting me be part of your journey to 100 episodes of Reliability Matters. I had an absolute blast being on the show and got to make a new friend, which is something that's pretty hard to do during this pandemic. If you ever want me back, all you have to do is ask and, you know, Pay a hundred dollars. No, I'm kidding. I'll come back anytime for you, buddy. Anytime at all. I really think this podcast helps listeners learn the importance of reliability and helps them to learn some lessons from others on what to do and what not to do. You know, I've been told that an engineer's knowledge goes out of date within about four years of them leaving school. So unless you're constantly learning and constantly educating yourself, you're gonna become pretty useless over the course of your career. Listening to Reliability Matters is just one of the ways that you can stay relevant in this field. And I hope and encourage anybody out there to spend a few minutes on your drive to work with Mike Conrad buzzing in your ear. Reliability is exceedingly important with modern circuit boards. As things keep getting smaller and more precise, you know, the, the things that we got away with before are things that we can no longer get away with. You know, as we start this journey to uh, Ultra HDI, you know, component features below 50 microns, in the manufacturing process, we got to start worrying about every little bit of dust and debris that's floating around the room. You know, if something the size of a dust particle lands on your board and you're dealing with three mil traces, no problem. But if you're dealing with, you know, one mil trace and below, you got a problem. Um, and that's something that might be a failure now. It might be a failure in the future. But if we don't keep our boards clean and our environments clean, you're going to end up selling somebody something that doesn't work. And then they don't come back to you. Nobody wants that. 
Anyways, Mike, you're a great guy. I really appreciate what you're doing, and I encourage you to keep it up. Uh, it, it's a great service you're providing to the community. Hope this helps. If you need anything, you can always reach out and ask. Thanks so much, Mike. Bye. Thanks for those kind words, Mark. And it didn't even cost me $100. I got that one for free, so I appreciate it. Um, for some reason, my comments aren't showing up. I can't put them on the screen, but Mark did uh, state, uh, if I ever invent something amazing and get filthy rich, you'll never hear from me again. Everyone will just ask, where'd Mark go? Where's Mark? Um, and no, Mark, uh, you were not long-winded. That was just perfect. Uh, our next clip is from an episode uh, called Meet the Press. And uh, we brought in some journalists uh, from our trade uh, trade industry and uh, to talk about um, all sorts of things. And I think the uh, topic of discussion at that one, and still is, uh, component shortages. And uh, this is uh, Mike Buto Phil St uh, from Circuits Assembly, Phil Stoughton from uh, Scoop TV, Trevor Galbraith from Global SMT and Production, and Eric Miskell of the EMS Now um, show and, um, and uh, online publication. And again, we're going to talk about component shortages. I'll see you in a few seconds. You know, it doesn't seem to me that the component OEMs are rushing to bring more capacity online. So whereas, and I tend to agree with Trevor that the, um, the lead time started going out pre-COVID, uh, but the um, things like MLCCs and, and, you know, some of the crystal stuff, you know, that's always kind of hard to come by. You know, that's, that's always a difficult thing, but it's more just everyday resistors and chip caps and things like that. When those times start going out, then you say, okay, yeah, there's something going on here. My take is that the... Um, the effects, right? You know, you've, you've got this three-year, um, if we go to the end of 2022, it would be the longest uh, bull run for, you know, for component shortages that we've ever had, even more than the 99, 2000, 2001 run. So, you know, the, people are just putting a, a stake in the ground and saying, end of 22, you know, maybe, I don't know. It's kind of, they're kind of guessing, right? And we're all just sort of guessing there. So that's why I try to focus more on what are the actual impacts Right. So what I'm seeing is that used equipment sellers are now getting into component sourcing, you know, and that's a weird, weird thing. Right. Because we're used to them going in and buying up uh, factories that are going out of business and they buy, you know, the metro racks and the ESD lines and they get all the shelving and all that. And those, there's always parts on those. Right. And what they, used, they do is they just throw all those in a dumpster. Now they're saying, shoot, I can I can make money off these parts. So they're, they're, you know, getting into component reselling and, and they're taking that stock room and they're basically putting it up all on Octopart. You know, you go to Google Maps and you look at the building, you're like, that doesn't look like a factory to me. That looks kind of more like a trailer, you know, but you can buy parts there. So the, you know, the counterfeit and, and what's happening is EMS guys are saying, hey, look, you know what? I got this part. I've bought racks from these guys before. Uh, you know, I, I think I know where this came from. Let's build a few boards. And if it's reliable, let's run with it. And the OEMs are saying, okay. And, and so you're going to end up with no traceability, you know, yeah. lots of counterfeit parts, you know, moving into mainstream products. I mean, that's really where the mess is going to be. Right. So all this talk about about wanting to know the origins of the part and, and being able to, to see everybody who's touched it and all the rest of it, you know, that's out the window and will be for some time to come. Yeah, I think adversity and opportunity are the same sides, uh, are different sides of the same coin. And and that applies to nefarious operations yeah. as well. Um, so, you know, the, the pandemic has given uh, companies in our industry uh, 
a, a unique advantage uh, or opportunity, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, when everyone switched over to making ventilators and things like that, you know, that was clearly an opportunity. The fact that our industry was deemed essential very, very, very early on, like the next day after state shutdown was, you know, an opportunity. Uh, but then again, you know, opportunity is a very wide, it's very widespread. And clearly the, uh, I, I worked a lot with the, um, on a production side with the counterfeit conference, the SMTA counterfeit conference. And mm. yeah, that business is alive and well right now. Uh, and the component <laughs> shortage only highlights that. So can I add one thing? And then I want to dying to hear what Eric has to say about this, because his background, I think is, is, you know, just goes right into this, right? So, I mean, at least one very large distributor is at the point where they're saying, these are the parts available. What can you make with them? Right. It's like MacGyver. And so, you know, that's going to lead to respins and whatnot. And so the trickle down, right, is that, you know, the question becomes, will EMS companies start to push the OEMs to share the cost of parts, almost like a consignment model? And, you know, because otherwise that's a lot of carrying costs for EMS guys, no matter how big or small they are. And, and even for OEMs like you, Mike, right? So you're tying up a lot of capital in, in parts. Now, you get to make the decision whether you're going to redesign the board or not. Um, but... The EMS guy doesn't have that option, right? It's the OEM may say, hey, look, you can't get this part. Let's redesign. Now the EMS guy is stuck with a, with a lot of material that may or may not be reusable inside their own factory. So who's responsible for that inventory when a board is inevitably respun? Uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Fred Schenkelberg, he is the uh, creator of Ascendo Reliability. You can find that site at reliability.fm. As I said earlier, they syndicate the show. And... Uh, if you go to reliability.fm, you'll not only see this broadcast, uh, you will see uh, dozens of reliability-based uh, podcasts and um, webinars and things like that. He has uh, dedicated his work to creating this free resource uh, for not just our industry, but other industries as well. Here's a couple of, a uh, few seconds of words from Fred. Hi, Mike, and congratulations on making 100 episodes for the Reliability Matters podcast. And that's a remarkable uh, uh, achievement for any podcast, and I'm quite sure you're just getting started. The content and the information you provide is stellar. It provides great practical advice, insights, and nuanced, uh, but also very much practical and basic. So you, you reach a wide audience. You talk to amazing people from across the industry. And it makes a difference. The more people uh, um, can understand and create reliable circuit assemblies, which go in just about everything from satellites to cell towers, to switching stations, to our vehicles, um, even my coffee pot. We count on them the, on those elements of our life to just work. And that's what reliability is about. And so the show that you're putting on uh, makes a difference. I enjoy listening to it. And here at Ascendo Reliability, we have the reliability.fm podcast, uh, uh, reliability podcast network. And we're very proud to have you as a member of it. So keep going, Mike. I'm looking forward to the next milestone, which by the way, is uh, not 200, but 1000. And I'm quite sure you'll have a great time getting there. Talk to you soon. Bye. When I started this, thank you, Fred. When I started this podcast, I thought we would do about ten episodes and and then move on to something else. I didn't I didn't have any any vision at all that we would make it to a hundred. And now Fred just said a thousand. So that's I don't know if we'll make it to a thousand, but we'll certainly keep going until no one shows up.
I want to mention a comment from uh, Rob Boguski. Uh, the pandemic has given a lot of shady operators a convenient cover to gloss and explain away over many shortcomings and questionable practices. In a way, it has become the universal excuse du jour. That's absolutely true. I'm not even going to comment more on it because I'll just get all agitated. Uh, that's, that's very true. Pet peeve of mine. Uh, the next clip, uh, very quickly, is an audio-only clip from an earlier show, uh, and um, that was episode number 15. And that uh, this features uh, Michelle Ogahara from Seika and Sherry Stepp from Kaizen, and they talked about their experience as being women in the electronics industry. Here we go. What I'd like to ask the both of you, or what are your experiences as as a female in this industry, uh, both in the past and in the present? And and feel free to share other experiences from other women that you talk to. I don't expect you to, um, you know, uh, say anything bad against your employer. I don't want to put you in any kind of uh, predicament. Uh, but just as in general, uh, what are your experiences as a female in this industry when you first got into this industry, both of you 20 plus years ago, and uh, all the way through to today? I think that for myself in the beginning, it was really natural to feel a lack of confidence simply because I was new in the in the industry. However, I do feel that women in general are, are doers, multitaskers, and we, we handle all aspects um, in our daily lives. So nonetheless, I think we take this for granted and don't really think that this is a special capability. We just feel like, oh, this is a normal thing. And what we should realize is that this is a, a real skill set and we can often allow ourselves to get up to speed and excel in everything or anything that we have a determination or a mindset to, to accomplish. But, you know, it's no need to take a back seat and just, you know, take, drive it forward, be the driver. Um, I, I find now that I'm older and with more experience, I use my voice uh, quite a bit more and show more conviction in my decisions and recommendations. But I, I know that it took a lot longer than it should have uh, for me to reach this this level, you know, uh, comfortably. So I I would just really uh, you know recommend to to women out there that understand that we we do have this this capability uh, that that and we should take charge and 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 feel free with confidence to understand that this is something that we can bring to our job and and uh and and be an asset no matter what position we're in very good sherry are, are there differences in a female experience in this industry 27 years ago versus oh absolutely today? um when i started i was one of the very few women in the sales and marketing um arena or just in the business entirely. Kaizen's always been really good about hiring women. We have a lot of smart women that work here. Um, as a matter of fact, National International Women's Day was last month. And um, I, I counted how many we have, and we have over 30 women that work for Kaizen globally and in a variety of positions from um, accounting to chemist to applications technical uh, technicians, um, salespeople, uh, a lot of women in management, including myself. Um, so we've been given a lot of opportunity here based on merit rather than our gender. But that that's not necessarily the case. I would go to conferences or trade shows and um, 
you look around and you don't see many people that look like you. Um, and you would think that we would just band together um, and gravitate toward each other. But um, it's it's also a very competitive industry, I think. Um, and sometimes we, as we're trying to uh, make our place, we forget that there's other women that need to be pulled along. So, uh, but today, you know, you go to those same trade shows, you go to those same conferences, and um, there are women who are uh, presidents of their companies, they're uh, engineers, they're uh, giving those technical conferences, they're, they're giving presentations, they're leaders. And um, it's, it's really nice to, to see a, a bigger balance. We still have a little ways to go. Uh, I believe that you know, there are some some areas that uh, that that we need to we need to increase in number, I think, with qualified younger people because our industry is is aging. Um, so bringing in new people and not just new young men, but new young women who are chemists and and um, and engineers and and have MBAs and and just have that drive to to be able to, even, you know, machine operators, all of it. Thank you, Michelle and uh, Sherry, for those comments. Uh, real quick, we're going to hear from uh, Chris Denny. Chris Denny is um, the CTO of Worthington Assembly, a contract manufacturing company. This came from episode number 70. Uh, well, he was a guest on actually episode number 74 uh, back in August of 2021, last year. Uh, Chris is also the host of the Pick Place podcast. There's not too many podcasts for our industry. His is one of them. And uh, he and Melissa uh, are both co-hosts for this uh, endeavor. And I would highly recommend his and her podcast. Uh, it's uh, very informative. Um, you can research, you can find it on Apple Podcasts and pretty much wherever you get your podcast. Just search Pick Place Podcast. Here's a couple of words from Chris. Hey, Mike. This is Chris Denny from the Pick Place Podcast uh, and sometimes known as Chris Denny from Worthington Assembly, the CTO for Worthington Assembly. Well, uh, my experience being a guest on the podcast was excellent. I really enjoyed myself. I had a great time. Uh, it was fun to chat with you, Mike. I think you're a great host and I think you ask great questions and I think you do a great job educating your listeners and being able to get out of your guests information that is valuable to the listeners. Uh, I think it's so important that these types of educational programs exist within industries in general. Uh, but specifically our industry. Uh, personally, uh, I think there's too many silos of information out there. I think there's too many gatekeepers of knowledge and uh, there needs to be more sharing. Uh, there needs to be more forums for people to be able to share this information. And I think a podcast is a great way of doing that. I really appreciate people who produce educational information uh, I was, uh, and probably still am a bit of a novice engineer at one time. And, uh, uh, the little bit of information that I could find on the internet, um, was so valuable for me back then. And, uh, being able to interact with other engineers in person is mostly how I picked it up. Uh, but now we have uh, material like this where we can take in information while we're driving our car, walking our dog whatever it takes, uh, washing the dishes, you know, and, uh, and learning at the same time about how to become better engineers, how to become better manufacturers, how to become better designers of products and uh, create something that is going to last 
a long, long time and ideally could even outlast us. I think reliability in modern circuit assemblies is so important. Um, you know, it, whether it's a ventilator that is literally keeping somebody alive and we all know how important that is <laughs> to make sure that those circuit boards are reliable. Uh, or if it's simply a matter of a microphone so that some podcaster can uh, record his thoughts into it reliably without frustration and without um, piling up a landfill of, of old assemblies that no longer work. When you make something that lasts a long time, uh, it's a great experience because you have something that can continue to be used for decade after decade and uh, produce something that uh, people appreciate. I, I just think it's so important that uh, we continue to push this industry forward and uh, setting the expectation that a reliable product is the only product. Uh, I'm so grateful that this podcast exists. As I said earlier, I think more of them need to exist. Uh, I think more YouTube channels need to exist. I think more uh, meetings need to exist where people can share information and publish information and learn from each other. And uh, I'm so grateful uh, that uh, you started this podcast a uh, hundred episodes ago <laughs> so that we could all learn from it. Thanks so much for doing that. Keep up the great work and I will continue to hear you for years to come. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Chris. I'm not really sure how many people are listening to this podcast while they're doing dishes, but uh, I get the point. But I appreciate those kind words and uh, good luck also on your podcast. I know it's doing quite well. Um, we're going to... Uh, start wrapping this up. I appreciate you guys being here. You've been here for longer than I expected, but that's just the way these go. Um, another reason why I don't do these things live. Our last clip is uh, with uh, Amit Dror, who is one of the founders of Nano Dimensions. And the clip isn't in, doesn't really talk about technology. Um, that episode does, uh, but the, the clip doesn't. However, sometimes we end up getting some just golden nuggets of advice uh, that you can apply way beyond our industry. And um, I'll let Amit uh, give us that advice. Um, there is one question that has absolutely nothing to do with, with nano dimension, but um, in looking at your bio, you're, you're kind of a serial entrepreneur. You know, this is not your first rodeo. Um, and uh, one of the companies that you founded uh, just stood out. And I have to ask you about that milk and honey distillery. What's that about? Well, okay. So uh, the credit goes to another co-founder of Nano Dimension, Simon Fried, friend of mine. And uh, he actually came up with an idea just before we founded Nano Dimension. He said, you know, we live in Israel and there is not even one proper whiskey distillery. And I said, well, Simon, you know, there isn't proper whiskey distilleries pretty much anywhere outside of... Uh, I don't know, Scotland, Ireland, the US. There you go. You don't yes. get them. Sure. And he said, it's about time to have one in Israel. And we hooked up with, with another co-founder of uh, the Milk and Honey Distillery. And we just decided we're going to have something we could all be proud of, which is a proper, real whiskey distillery. And and we did. We just, we just said we're going to do it. Today, it produces more than 250 thousand uh, bottles it actually wins a lot of prizes just won uh, quite a few awards in, in recent few months and we are exporting it to I, I guess 24 countries 
Obviously, US is, is a major market, so you should give it a try. I will look my, for my it. My subjective opinion that it's pretty good, but hey. I, I will definitely look for it. Uh, you don't pick easy projects, do you? You don't pick projects with immediate returns. Uh, you know, you can't just open a distillery and sell a bottle of whiskey in, in a day. <laughs> There's things like aging and things like that, right? So I think, I think the key thing in life is do things you're passionate about rather than... That's true you know uh shortcuts because um yeah you know you, you, we all need to bring on some a salary to live but if we're not happy with what we're doing it, it, it's pretty difficult i mean so as long as you're passionate about it you do it and i i'm pretty passionate about whiskey and also about trans- transformative technologies yeah well that, that, that I, I see shows. how it's linked so clearly, a bottle of uh, milk and honey uh, whiskey uh, is included with every um, Dragonfly system, right? Well, now that you mention it, I guess it is. Now it is. <laughs> he heard it here first. Heard it here first. The key thing in life is to do things you're passionate about. It's a pretty sage advice for a technical show, especially. A sincere thank you to my 117 guests that I've had the privilege of, of learning from o- over the past uh, couple of years. And, um, and of course, the uh, 20,800 plus uh, people who have downloaded uh, this content from the show. I, I, without all of you listeners and viewers, uh, I would just be a talking head. And Lord knows we have way too many talking heads these days. Uh, again, a special uh, shout out to Mike Buto at Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat for syndicating the show, as well as Fred Schenkelberg at uh, Sendo Reliability at reliability.fm. PCB um, Chat can be found at pcbchat.com and uh, Sendo Reliability, again, at reliability.fm. Thanks for being part of the Reliability Matters podcast family. I really appreciate you being here, and thanks for being part of this uh, this grand experiment uh, that, we're, that we're doing. We'll keep it going as long as, as, long as all of you keep uh, watching and listening. Thank you. Uh, Be safe, be healthy, be happy, and most importantly, keep doing it right. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.